This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome back to Season 2 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In this episode, we hear from Allison Mollick, Chief Operating Officer at May Mobility. We discuss May Mobility's commercial deployment of autonomous shuttles on public roads in the city of Detroit and their future plans for expansion. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Michelle. So you're the Chief Operating Officer at May Mobility. For those that, that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about May Mobility, how it got started, and what you're working on? Yeah, so with May Mobility, we are a transportation services company that's leveraging our self-driving technology to provide great uh, customer transportation today. We were founded by myself and my two co-founders, Edwin Olson and Steve Bozar. Uh, we came together really looking to approach self-driving uh, transportation in a way that we thought made sense. So my co-founders have a strong background in uh, robotics and self-driving technology coming out of the University of Michigan, as well as work with Ford Motor Company and Toyota Research Institute. And I actually come from General Motors, having worked uh, on some key relationships for them when I was working in corporate venture. And we came together really from a framework of focusing on how we can scale um, this transportation form in a way that's safe and reliable. And so today we uh, have launched our first product, and it's a shuttle product that is a, a low-speed electric vehicle that's able to operate uh, in mixed environments. So we actually operate in downtown Detroit today, uh, which is a, a good variety of traffic that we see on a daily basis. And we're using that first product to actually get us out so we can learn more about how, you know, what people like in transportation and how the vehicles operate best in roadways. So eventually we can help serve even more transportation needs, both with our low-speed vehicle, but looking to the future, even uh, at other vehicle platforms. Terrific. So uh, when was the company started? We started the company in May of 2017. Great. So the... The company is uh, very new, and it's very impressive that you've uh, already announced this uh, commercial deployment of shuttles in Detroit. Um, tell us how that program came to be and uh, what the arrangement you have. It's a B2B model, right? Yeah, so part of our early approach um, was to simplify. So on the technology side, we looked at how can we simplify what the technology has to do we can get the vehicles out safe and reliable. And so we've, we've looked at using our low-speed electric vehicle. Um, we are able to, to react in a car length, so we can stop very quickly if we see, you know, pedestrians and things. Um, and so when we thought about sort of on the technology side, how do we simplify? Speed was a big part of that. And on the business side, we wanted to simplify things as well. So we thought about who, you know, has a known road network of roads that they, they need to be moved on has a known you know, number of people that need to have transportation every day. And so as we, as we thought about that, you know, municipalities fall into that, especially public transit agencies. 
as well as you know corporations and university campuses where you've got shuttle services. And so when we, we looked at the market from that perspective, we started talking with municipalities and uh, different companies that use shuttle services for their employees or visitors. And through one of our investors, actually, Detroit Venture Partners, we got an introduction to uh, the, the parking and transportation team at Bedrock. And they are a property management company in downtown Detroit that operates quite a few shuttle routes, uh, moving people from parking decks to their, their end destination of their office buildings. And uh, we started the discussion uh, really around customer discovery to understand sort of what, you know, why, does, why do corporations offer shuttle services? What are their pain points? And uh, worked with them to do a pilot last October to to really start getting rider feedback uh, and as well as getting their feedback about what they would look for in a transportation partner. And um, through that relationship, we've been able to evolve it into a full contract. So we are operating five days a week, 19 hours a day, uh, 360, well, not 365, but for a full year uh, <laughs> with the option to continue the relationship as we add more routes. Great. And Bedrock has uh, about 100 buildings in Detroit. Is that right? I can't quote you the actual number of buildings, but they do own quite a bit of the central business district of Detroit. It seems like a really unique opportunity uh, to have a, you know, a single company that um, you know, has that kind of need. How, how many of their employees are you transporting every day? So on the route that we service today, we service about, um, I think there's about 200 people that are assigned to that parking deck um, and thus on that route. Uh, We've started to look at other routes that we can service for them. They have about 17,000 employees uh, in downtown Detroit. And their view on mobility really aligns with the way a lot of master planning um, mixed-use developers think. So it's helping us to create, you know, business use cases that we can extend and uh, hopefully bring to uh, other markets soon. And so uh, tell me about the rider experience. Um, Employees drive to a a parking garage, and then they need to take a shuttle to get to their office building. Do they have to use an app, or is there sort of a fixed uh, schedule? How often do the shuttles run, and kind of what is it like from the rider perspective? Yeah, so from the rider perspective, we really wanted to continue the aspects of the experience that they already had. So that way there wouldn't be too many new aspects of, of what they were doing. And mm-hmm. we, we replaced a 30-passenger bus that was a circulator bus where it had uh, a stop at the garage and a stop at the office building and just uh, ran in a circle and it, it leaves on the 9th, mm-hmm. so 9 after, 19 after, et cetera. And um, so when we launched Twist Bedrock, we kept the stops so that way people's habits didn't have to change. You know, they know where to get the vehicle. Uh, and when we're off peak, we do, you know, try to launch at the nine so that way that habit hasn't had to change yet. But when we're on peak, so sort of during morning rush hour and evening rush hour, we leave even more frequently. Um, and so with having multiple vehicles on route, we're actually able to be there. Whenever people are ready to go, um, the vehicles there, and it's really interesting to see habits starting to change. And we've had a couple of comment cards filled out and given to us uh, where people before uh, wouldn't 
always trust that if they if they got to their parking uh, deck and if they waited for the shuttle that they would make it to their first meeting on time. And mm-hmm. so we've actually started to see that people really do trust that there's going to be a car there, they're not going to have to wait, they're not going to be delayed. And we think that's a really exciting, you know, start at a proof point of changing expectations and habits. And we're excited uh, for the opportunity to continue to explore that and, and grow the transportation that we provide with Bedrock. Right. So when employees get on the shuttle, is there a May Mobility uh, attendant or, or driver or other personnel on board, or is it just the other riders? So we do keep what we call a fleet attendant on board. Um, they serve a very important role, actually, with rider education and, and uh, answering their questions. So we, we have them trained both in system monitoring, but then also in customer service to help um, build that trust for our riders. We think that's very important. So a from number- how we ab- yeah. Oop, go ahead. No, go, no, go right ahead. From how we approach our technology, um, we see the road network that we serve as a part of the overall safety system. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the unique things about what we do is we'll actually we really study the road network that we're going to serve. So we know if there's tricky intersections um, or if there's features of the, the road network that are, are more challenging in terms of how people use it. And we'll actually add what we call roadside units. We're adopting language from our customers on that one. Um, <laughs> but the RS help us to, to see more than our car would be able to otherwise. And when we deploy the RSUs, it, it turns it in, it turns road network into part of our overall system. So keeping those fleet attendants in allows us to make sure that we have the whole system operating as it should be. So the roadside units you're referring to, is that basically a sort of a vehicle to infrastructure uh, technology where you've, uh, you've planted devices actually along the way? Exactly. So we, we've developed our own proprietary infrastructure and communities where they already have smart infrastructure, we're happy to use it. Um, but otherwise, we'll work directly with the community to help us get that uh, extra leg up. And what kind of information does the vehicle obtain from the, the roadside units? So for our Detroit route, we actually have 10 different stoplights. And so in this case, we have 10 cameras that watch the stoplights. And this may seem kind of sounding kind of silly, but when you think about all the different technology you need to enable to ensure that you know what the status of the stoplight is on vehicle, it gets, it's challenging um, from the camera to uh, being able to identify where the stoplight is in frame, and then even making sure that at dawn or dusk when the, the sunlight is like aimed right at the stoplight, that you still know what the status is. We as humans, you know, maybe arch our neck in a different angle or we kind of like sneak up under it so we can try to look straight up. It's not easy. Um, And so what we do with the infrastructure is a double check because stoplights are not a thing that you want to get wrong. So we we have cameras in place where their whole job is just to sit and stare at the stoplight um, and, and make sure that we have a double check on what the status is. Great. And uh, aside from stoplights, are there, are there other pieces of data you're getting from your roadside infrastructure? So we have, um, they are cameras, so we're able to get quite a bit of information. Uh, and right now, um, 
we haven't started to repurpose that. We've had mm -hmm. some ideas of how we could repurpose that information, but have really been focused on getting the operations up and um, making sure that our customers and riders are happy. Right. So, uh, so there's an attendant on board, and if a rider wants to get off, uh, does the shuttle just stop automatically at each office building, or is there some communication with the vehicle that that riders need to do? And then, what happens if there's an emergency, or someone's sick, or you know, there's a, a fight, or <laughs> some sort of dispute? Like, what 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 happens uh, inside the shuttle? Yeah. So, so there's sort of two different scenarios that that uh, that you brought. I'll, I'll I'll broadly categorize this into two different scenarios. Mm -hmm. uh, in the scenario of requesting to get off the vehicle, our service to our to our paying customer is between two stops, and so we stop at both stops. Um, mm -hmm. As we we've worked with other customers to look at adding more routes and really work with our partners to understand what they would prefer. Some people prefer that you stop at every stop. Some people prefer that once somebody gets in the vehicle, they can kind of input what their end stop is. Um, we work with our partners on that. As we look towards physical safety, we actually do have cameras on board that help us to understand what's going on in the cabin. And we think that's important because a fight could break out. Someone could get sick or have a heart attack. And um, we think that, that, especially as we talk with transit agencies, like a, a big part of bus drivers' jobs is keeping, you know, keeping everybody safe in the vehicle, inside the vehicle, not just um, operating in traffic. And so we have started to think about how to implement that into our product um, and making sure that we're we're doing the right thing by our passengers. And so, do you have a, a live person monitoring these video camera feeds, kind of in real time for the shuttle? While we have the fleet attendants in vehicle, we do it in a distributed manner with them in the vehicle serving that function. Um, mm -hmm. As we start bringing them out, it will be centralized. And, um, and so we're, we're getting that uh, infrastructure set up. Right. What about, um, what about in the future? So if, if you don't have an attendant, you're thinking that you'll, you would build out this infrastructure to kind of have uh, a remote kind of monitor So that actually is already common today in like transit operations. Mm -hmm. And so we think that um, adopting approaches that work in market today is probably the, the best way to go about it. Right. So you mentioned some of the work you do uh, in advance of picking a shuttle route that you needed to really map and, and understand uh, what goes on on the street before um, launching the service, um, how do you envision expanding next? Would you um, add additional routes in downtown Detroit, uh, add different companies, uh, or are you looking to move into other cities? What, what are some of the ways you're thinking about expanding and kind of what kind of work do you need to do before you can do that? So I would say all of the above. Um, I did talk in detail about the, the work that we do to create our maps and make sure we can operate safely. That said, uh, we were able to do it pretty quickly. And so I think we, um, we've done uh, demonstrations in Florida and Texas. And in each case, uh, it took about two days 
to go from mass route to sort of validated on route. Um, there are other aspects when we think about putting it into production that add a little bit more time, um, but it's, it's actually pretty quick. And so as we think about where we want to go from here, uh, absolutely, we're already having discussions with Bedrock about how we can expand to support them on more routes. We have had a lot of interest based off that press with other parties in the Central Business District of Detroit. And so we're starting to talk with those individuals and see how we can expand to use our existing operation site, as well as uh, in discussion with quite a few communities looking at who comes next. Uh, so our, our focus right now is on states where there's a strong uh, supportive regulatory environment. So discussions going on in Florida, discussions going on in Texas, as well as Michigan. And there's a couple of other communities that have, have stepped forward and are, are looking to engage self-driving vehicle uh, companies to come in and provide transportation. And, and we're, uh, we're having conversations with everyone that I reach about. Have you had any collisions or other incidents uh, in uh, the route that you're running in Detroit? We have not had any incidents to report. <laughs> okay. um, so in thinking about Florida or Texas or additional communities, uh, do you think you'll focus on private contracts as you've done in Detroit, or are you looking to serve the public more broadly? Um, and are you thinking about um, working with public transit? We absolutely are thinking about working with public transit. Um, in the last eight weeks, I think we've submitted uh, nine different proposals to transit agencies that have been looking for partners. So uh, we're very active. Uh, it's been interesting. We've learned a lot in terms of how to think about um, being a good partner to transit agencies and, and are trying to do that. And so we're, we're definitely putting a lot of effort in there as well as talking with other private groups. And with respect, in particular, with respect to uh, working with public transit, but I guess also with, with private companies, are you thinking about um, doing more of an on-demand product versus a fixed route? Absolutely. So for us, the on-demand versus fixed route um, ends up coming down to more how do you request a vehicle and, and what expectations do you set for the people demanding the car. Mm -hmm. And as long as we can make sure that we're going into a community with the right expectation around what the car can do, the, the on-demand part of the car doing that isn't that hard once we have that road network mapped out. And so it's, it's interesting as we've um, talked to our first customer, Bedrock, and uh, looking at some other uh, other potential partners in the Central Business District of Detroit, the different circulator routes that they need served actually overlap. So we start to get more road network. We could start to get more road networks mapped out, which is really exciting, which would then allow us to have a, the road network and the install base of vehicles to actually start playing around with point-to-point -point transportation. Um, but we, our focus at the highest level is making sure that we're meeting our partners' needs. And so as people have that type of request um, and we're winning contracts, I think you'll see us uh, get, get more and more flexible with how we leverage the, uh, the vehicles that we have. 
So I, I think you're saying that the real challenge with on demand for you is um, making sure you can cover the geography that there are, you know, that you're serving routes that you've mapped and that you're comfortable with because that's kind of a core part of your safety proposition as opposed to the nuances of on demand as a technology itself and uh, kind of that business model. Yeah, I think on the on demand business model, you've got to match. Um, rider demand and, and driver availability, which is a challenge. I, I don't discredit companies for figuring that out. Luckily, um, we get we can easily tell our drivers what to do because uh, they're just the cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, then with the expectations that have been set up by people of if you call an existing on-demand vehicle, you should be able to go one mile or, you know, 50 miles. Okay. And... Um, if, if we enter, and this is actually part of the reason why we're approaching the market that we are, which is why I'm taking this extra time on that. Um, self-driving shuttles can't, like, yes, maybe they can do a 50-mile route, but how many people is that useful for? It, that's, those are, like, really tough questions. And when we think about how do we build trust in the, the rider group, we think trust in the safety of the system is really important, but trust that, like, we will always be able to serve the transportation is important too. And so making sure that we're setting expectations appropriately and entering into the market in a way where we're very clear, like if you need to get to the next town over, we're probably not your solution, but if you want to get, you know, to the next neighborhood over, we are. Uh, We think that's really important because we don't want to let riders down if they enter into this um, thinking they're going to get something else. Because that actually, we think, will will set the, the industry back a bit if we if people keep missing the mark in terms of just thinking that you know you can go everywhere all the time. No self-driving vehicle can go everywhere all the time today, and mm-hmm. and to claim otherwise, I think, is is going to set us up for a lot of frustrated riders. Right. So in the public transit space, and you know, I'm sure you guys have been thinking a lot about this in putting together proposals, there's a lot of criticism today about the idea of microtransit. Um, there's you know, the general criticism that a smaller vehicle is not as efficient, you're not moving as many people, it creates more traffic, and that uh, overall, these types of pilot programs have not been successful. How are you guys approaching it differently uh, in in thinking about public transit so that, you know, the idea of a smaller shuttle can be effective for communities? Yeah, so when we, when we talk with public transit agencies, we... We talk about augmenting what's already working. And so if there are fixed routes that have really great utilization, those should continue to be fixed route big buses. Mm-hmm. When we look at how to increase ridership and increase accessibility, oftentimes outside of a quarter, like the land outside of a quarter of a mile distance from major transit stops is considered too far just based on human nature. People don't want to walk that distance to get to the stop. And so as we think about microtransit, we aren't necessarily taking an approach like a a chariot um, or even we'll we'll just start with with chariot, for example. They've created some really long uh, bus routes that they operate in Silicon Valley. And 
you know, they're claiming to, to really be rethinking public transit, and that is a, a challenging set of discussions because I know microtransit in that form factor um, comes with its, its own ups and downs. I think the way that we're thinking about participating with public transit is quite a bit different, more as a feeder network then uh, we'll take, you know, low capacity lines and serve them with a smaller vehicle, if that makes sense. So rather than um, competing with existing lines that are working by providing, um, you know, more of a bespoke experience, you're looking instead to um, have your shuttles operate in places where there's not large demand. It's a, they could use a smaller vehicle and it would make sense to connect with the rest of the, the transit system. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we see our approach as another tool in an overall network, as opposed to, you know, cutting out parts of the network for us to serve all by ourselves. Just, and, and we think that that's really important to help, communities reach their overall transportation goals. So that's sort of our high-level focus when we work with places about bringing in transportation. It's about the community's goals for transportation and helping them meet them. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the vehicle. I think you guys uh, announced an agreement with Magna, a Tier 1 auto supplier. Um, Tell me about the vehicle. I understand it's a Polaris uh, electric vehicle that you're you're having Magna retrofit. Um, what's involved in the technology stack? Is May Mobility providing all of the technology, and and uh, how are you approaching that? So we buy uh, chassis. So we buy the Polaris Gem chassis. We buy um, all of our own. Well, we buy sensors from our own suppliers. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of LiDAR and radar and a little bit of camera. Uh, And then we actually work with Magna to reassemble the vehicles to the design that we established. So we figured out where the sensors sit best on the vehicle. We've actually developed our own hardware computer to run our software that uh, drives the vehicle. And so we've been very deep into the physical integration um, of how the car comes together. It arrives as a, as a drivable vehicle and we, uh, take quite a few parts out and then uh, work with Magnet to to put new ones back in. Um, And so they've been a great partner to help us take our design, which is optimized for self-driving capabilities um, and, and really make sure that we're also thinking about design for manufacturability. Right. And so May Mobility is doing the entire technology stack from, you know, sensor integration all the way through kind of drive-by-wire controls? Uh, Yes. So we have uh, really reworked the motor and and brake and steering control. So we've made the vehicle effectively drive-by-wire and then integrate our self-driving software in there. And we think that that approach is very important so we understand the safety that's built into the system at each level, um, and that's why we've taken the approach that we have, so we can make sure that we have that overarching view and can make sure that we're, we're thinking about safety in a really robust systems level way. So you're using a modular modular approach, and are you incorporating sort of some deep learning and, and some rules-based programming as part of your software? So actually our software is 
significantly different than how other people uh, approach self-driving technology. Uh, the team, so our, our, my co-founders, Ed and Steve, and the team, our first uh, six engineers, all worked together at a lab at the University of Michigan and did a lot of research work for the Department of Defense, for Ford, um, and a few other federal groups, and re fundamentally rethought the way that compute on vehicle happens. Um, and and it, this approach allows us to really start from the ground up in terms of thinking about safety and reliability and simplify the system, oddly enough, because when you think about how to make sure that things are repeatable, the simpler they are, the more repeatable they are. And so they actually developed a framework called multi-policy decision-making. And that software framework allows us to essentially understand the world around us and react appropriately instead of needing to recognize everything. So instead of needing to have seen everything at least once, um, our, our, system, our software system is set up to, to more generalize the, the things around it, you know, cars and bikes. Um, you can choose to use deep learning on vision systems to be able to identify is that a car or a bike or a person. Or you can use your other systems to kind of simply watch roughly how are they moving. Cars move different than people, uh, move different than bicycles. And so you can start to infer a bit more about the type of actors around you at a much simpler level. Uh, and the other key part of multi-policy decision-making, this is the understanding part, is we, we actually run little simulations on board of the vehicle to help the vehicle just assess Okay, here's, you know, the three things going on around me. Um, what are the other people likely to do? And if I take, you know, action A, B, or C, how does that change their action? And it allows us to act a lot more natural in, in traffic. So even negotiating things like jaywalkers that, you know, oftentimes if you're driving through a city and the, if people aren't in a crosswalk, they might speed up to get ahead of your car or they might slow down to let you pass and walk behind you. And we're able to observe those changes in momentum and kind of assess, if they're slowing down, then I can keep speed, so that way they can walk behind me. If they're speeding up, I should make sure that I slow down, because I do see them, let them go ahead of me, but I don't have to stop the car and wait until they leave. And it creates a much more natural flow, which is great for other road users, because it's something that they more expect to see. Um, but it's also great for our riders, because we don't have a, a jerky ride experience. Right, and you're able to run those uh, predictions and and multiple options as you go. Is that in part because of the slow speed that the shuttle's operating at? Um, actually, the, the the way that the predictions are set up is a is a pretty low compute required, um, and so more more can be read on this from the the April University of Michigan. Uh, April at the University of Michigan, if people want to re read yeah. more on MPD. Um, but actually, the lower speed for us is more about what sensors are capable of today. Um, so there really isn't a good sensor that can see far enough um, down the road with enough fidelity to be able to, to for, for in our minds, to be able to do highway speed things reliably. And so for us, the low speed was more rider comfort, even the riders that we talked to 
still aren't really sure if they want to get into a self-driving vehicle that goes on highway, but they feel okay about it at 25 miles an hour. So there's some amount of human adoption and then um, looking at being able to have sufficient reaction time with the sensors that exist in the market today. Right. And what kinds of testing have you done? You know, I, I think after the the Uber accident in Arizona, everyone's thinking about, you know, how as a company do you get comfortable with the safety level of vehicles that you're putting on a public road? What kinds of testing have you done? Um, how did you go through that process of getting comfortable that this vehicle at this speed in this location, you know, that you were comfortable with? Yeah, so so actually even safety starts even before testing. <laughs> it starts in how you design your system. And so going all the way back to how we design our system, we've gone through a more standard automotive engineering design approach of using uh, a process called design for failure, failure mode effects and analysis, where you're really thinking about the different ways that your hardware or software could do the wrong thing. What are the outcomes and how do you mitigate it? And when you do that, you actually uh, so this is my inner automotive uh, engineer nerd coming out. Um, you actually go through and think about, like, if, if this breaks and something bad could happen, you know, what are two other ways that we make sure that even if that thing breaks, the car still works? That is ingrained in automotive engineers um, because for even for standard cars, you know, if, if something with your drivetrain no longer works, you still need to be able to get the car safely over to the side of the road. We have to take that same approach here, and we have, and so we have um, redundant sensing at a 360 degrees around the vehicle. We have um, more detailed sensing with our lidar and radar. We actually also use some really simple flat, what we what's called flash lidar, that is really really simple, and we do that just to see in a bubble around the vehicle. Um, because, you know, even if there's things that we're pretty sure are a solid object or pretty sure we caught, um, when something gets within a close range of the vehicle, we can just know it's immediately within close range and slow down. And and that's, that's really thinking through that systems level design. Mm-hmm. When you have a system where you've thought through safety and redundancy, testing actually becomes a lot more clear uh, because you don't need to, like, think of weird cases to beat up the system. It becomes pretty standard. And so for us, testing through all types of weather is really important. Um, being based in Michigan, we're able to, we've tested in snow. We tested in very, very heavy rain. The second day after our launch, actually, it was down, up, and sideways rain. It was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to make sure that we're putting the vehicle in, type, in these types of weather environments um, is important. And before we put... When we launch new software, we take advantage of some of the testing resources that exist in Michigan. So here there's M-City and then the American Center for Mobility, which are great resources where they are um, closed test facilities that have different aspects of real traffic scenarios um, where they can be essentially mocked up. Mm -hmm. And so we use those resources to make sure that we are being safe and and doing things in a way that respects sort of the value of public roads and making sure that we're good members of the community. 
Right. And so can your vehicles achieve a, a minimal risk condition on their own? It, it sounds like the attendants that are in the vehicle are are not supposed to kind of jump in and take control of the vehicle in any way. Um, so does the vehicle on its own have the ability to pull over or come to stop or if there's a failure? Yes. So that is absolutely part of how we set up the design. So if there is a failure, um, and there's different levels of, of failures, and maybe it's, you know, one of a type of sensor isn't working, well, the car can still work because we have redundant sensing. So that might be one where the car says, hey, I, you know, I need to come back to get a mm-hmm. sensor check, but I can still operate. And there are other situations where the car would need to just pull itself over to the side of the road, and we've absolutely set the car up to be able to do that. Right. Are there other... Um operational design domain uh, restrictions. Um, It it sounds like your shuttle's, you know, a level four autonomous vehicle with kind of a operational design domain based on a geographic route, um, I guess potentially limited by speed. Are there other um, things that you think about with respect to the operational design domain? I mean, you're running at night, you're running in rain and snow. What are the other restrictions on your shuttle? Um, so in terms of like environmental, there aren't any, mm-hmm. when we work with new potential partners, we will look at the route network that they want that they would like to have served. And we reserve the right to say, not at this time mm-hmm. and, and not at this time comes up a lot. Um, our low speed electric vehicle is, is like the, the vehicle this type of classification of vehicle is allowed to go on roadways with speed limits up to 35 miles an hour. The vehicle itself may only travel up to 25 miles an hour, even for the human driven ones. And so when we talk with communities and they are really excited about getting a shuttle on this 40 mile an hour road and they, you know, they're willing to, to reduce the speed limit to 35, we have to have a real conversation about safety and road users. And, um, and making sure that we're putting these vehicles on roads where the other road users are, are ready and willing uh, to have, have this type of participation. And so urban environments are great with stoplights and stop signs. Cars aren't getting up above 15 miles an hour anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our average in Detroit is 18 miles an hour, and we're not really slowing anyone down. We're just traveling with the normal pace of traffic. But when you look at communities where maybe they want to serve a slightly longer distance, it could be a six-lane, 35-mile-an-hour road where people are traveling at 45 miles an hour. Right. And we study that before we sign up for anything because we think that being you know, honest about the road network and what makes sense is really important. Great. Um, and then well, how about restrictions on driving maneuvers? Does the shuttle have the ability to... Uh, handle, you know, coming up behind the FedEx truck that's double parked and it needs to go around or a construction site where, with a police officer kind of waving traffic around or something like that. How, how does the shuttle deal with kind of tricky road situations? This is a great question. Um, with multi-policy decision-making, we can establish policies. And right now, we do have a policy established for going, for going around a double-parked car. Um, if it is on a one-way road where there's multiple lanes, 
Our vehicle is able to do lane change maneuvers, so it would just go around the, the FedEx truck. In the case where it's not a, a, a one-way road and the vehicle would actually need to go over a double yellow line, we have that policy developed. The vehicle is not allowed to make the choice to elect that policy yet. So what would happen mm -hmm. um, is we would pull up behind that FedEx truck, we would stop as we should appropriately because there's something in the way and wait until the truck leaves. Unless the car actually can either um, elevate this uh, insight to the fleet attendant or once they actually come out of the vehicle, they can actually elevate it to a, a fleet monitor who would be sort of at our home base as opposed to out in the vehicle. And then that fleet monitor can assess the situation, decide uh, is this a good scenario for the vehicle to elect that policy and give it sort of a yes, no. And with the yes, the car then itself will be able to navigate around the double parked vehicle. Um, it wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be a person, you know, at some office, you know, back in Ann Arbor or something with a steering wheel, the car would be doing that work itself. It's just essentially asking for permission to do a thing it knows how to do. And the beauty of that is, is that as we have more data and we have more insight about double parked cars, um, and what to look for, you know, to see around the vehicle and things like that, we'll be able to do, to unlock that policy. And eventually that car will be allowed to do it by itself. And so it's almost like a, a training driver's license permit that like 14 <laughs> and 15 year olds get. Right. Um, you're allowed to drive, yeah. but you need, you know, parent supervision. And then once you're 16, you're allowed, at least in Michigan, you're allowed to drive, but you need to be home by a certain hour. That's right. kind of what we do with our vehicles. Right. Well, it sounds like a, uh, a safe approach. Uh, final question. I know we're running out of time. Um, how, how are you approaching working with federal and state regulators to get them comfortable with the safety approach, the vehicle design, and all of those uh, aspects of what you're doing? So we're, we're very open. Um, in the, the case of uh, federal regulators with our vehicle platform and our approach, we've, we've been able to be pretty transparent, uh, especially if you look at sort of the, the 15 point questions from NHTSA, we, you know, the, the answers to those questions were already baked into how we approach the system. Um, when it comes to a state level where there's a bit more jurisdiction today in terms of ability to operate, we work very closely with the departments of transportation. We work very closely with the Michigan Department of Transportation, uh, same in the other places where we've looked to operate, because we think that's very important. The, the state governments, government in general, is the steward of the public interest. And if we're out on public roadways trying to serve the public with this transportation, we think that we need to be good partners in that. And with respect to NHTSA, did you need to obtain some sort of uh, exemption from uh, the motor vehicle safety standards to uh, run a shuttle without a steering wheel? Our vehicle is compliant with FMBSS 500 uh, requirements. Got it. So you didn't require an exemption. You were able to, to just go with it. We meet the, the requirements for that type of vehicle. Yeah. For that. Great. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. Um, if cities or companies are interested in working with Maine Mobility, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? They should reach out to us at 
uh, at our uh, they can come to our website. We have some information there and, and contact us forms. That's MayMobility.com, M-A-Y-M-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y. And they can also reach out to info at MayMobility.com, and myself or my colleague Ben will be happy to follow up. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for your time, Michelle. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Allison for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and for all of our episodes on our Smarter Cars publication at medium.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.